Today on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your Week in Sports Cars episode. I am Marshall Pruitt. That voice you don't hear yet, Graham Goodwin, the editor of DailySportsCar.com, also a voice and face you will see and hear and enjoy on a variety of European sports car racing television broadcasts. How are you, my friend? Uh, we're great. It's a lovely, sunny weekend here in the UK. Um, late afternoon. Looking forward to plowing through a final um, day of what we've been doing on WC. Uh, sorry, WC on uh, DSC this week, which is a GT one week. I'm just writing up the final part of a four parts Stefan Rattel interview for that. We've had great fun with that, and uh, there'll be more to come moving forward. But boy, it started. Do you know what? It's been a slow burn, Marshall with news, actual news, but um, it did seem to be a bit of a conspiracy that three of the major race organisations decided to drop their return to racing announcements within two and a half hours of each other. Uh, And we were there with back-to-back phone calls and video conferences yesterday as all sorts of, um, you know, well, opportunities. Um, Next guest, plan B, plan C, call it what you will, uh, were laid down in front of us, including IMSA, including WEC, including ELMS, and including the GT World Challenge Europe. Thank you to you and to Stephen Kilby for deputizing for the last two weeks in my absence. Needed to take a little bit of a spell at home and also had a variety of things at home that have taken greater precedence. Great to see that folks enjoyed Stephen Kilby's uh, spot on here uh so thanks once again to steven hate to disappoint those who <laughs> seem to be firing in rapid fire that they wanted steven it feels like instead of me all i can tell you is <laughs> no, their double stint no. podcast there's some other <laughs> go listen to that then come back no. here and tell me whether you don't want me here so let's do no, that no. first I think, it, I think it's i think it's fair to say we all love you, mate. Oh, I'm not concerned you. about you. I just tell you that uh, I need to take a little bit of a step back for two weeks, and all of a sudden I come back to, yeah, great. Let's have the keep the other guy. Like, all right, cool. Got it. Absolutely got it. Let's let's play. So, uh, right. not effing around. So, return to racing. Yes. Uh, Where do you want to start? Where do you want to start with this before we get into questions? We've got. Obviously, these they're, they're really quick things to do here. Are this there is currently no change to the proposals for the WC and ELMS? Yes. So the first race is back. I think it's fair to say they're a little bit more foggy and rocky about the prospects of end of July at Paul Ricard. But I know they have an alternative date, and I'm aware what that date alternative date is. That, if it happens, will be behind closed doors. The same will apply to the. Um, returns racing for the WEC with the six hours of Spa. And again, that would be behind closed doors. And I think that one they're a little more uh, secure in. There's changes galore for uh, GT World Challenge Europe, Blompan GT Series as was. That calendar is now with us. But the one that seems to have actually excited people the most across social media in the last 24 hours, it's only just 24 hours since we've actually heard these changes, would be your side of the pond, MP. What are you hearing? What do you think? Very, very interesting developments, Graham. Ones that have been in the works for a little while will admit to have had an inkling on some, not on all, though, by any means, just a little bit of maybe 
amusing background. Speaking with a team owner early in the week, actually interviewing that IMSA team owner for a Racer Magazine feature, finished the interview questions, said, hey, what have you heard about the Champ Car race? That's the low-dollar, formerly known as Chump Car. Uh, What do you know about the Champ Car race at Daytona International Speedway being canceled on the weekend of July 4th? To which I said, I know nothing. He says, hmm, well, I've heard from a well-placed source that they were asked to give up that date. Asked might be polite way of putting it, <laughs> seeing as how the people who own the track also own IMSA. Uh, but his point being, he had heard through the grapevine that the folks, an amusing non-professional series that had intended to race over the 4th of July weekend at Daytona, had been pushed off that date with the goal to IMSA filling that in. Knowing what I'd heard, and I think many had been hearing about Watkins Glen, which had been the previously stated return event for IMSA at the end of June, having heard from a number of folks that, yeah, it doesn't sound like that's going to happen, this just started to add up of, oh, could IMSA actually have two consecutive races at Daytona? knowing that the Rolex 24 was held in January and going straight back. And that's indeed what was announced. I actually heard that a photographer, IMSA, not series photographer, but an independent photographer, well-known, someone who maybe (laughs) instead of wearing a baseball cap, uh, we think that person might be more accurately outfitted in a Ku Klux Klan hat at times, had heard that that person was running his mouth and telling many folks about a Daytona date uh, one or two days before it was formally announced. So got out, and uh, long story short, that's indeed what is happening. Interestingly, what are we doing right after that, Graham? We're going to Sebring for the first normal race I can think of in I don't even know when. Uh, for the WeatherTech Championship slash top tier ALMS, uh, or even back in the day IMSA, in I don't know how long. I mean, the 12 hour has been the fixture. I know that we have the Michelin Encore, which, again, it's a bit of a hodgepodge of pro, pro am. It's not a WeatherTech Championship event, but this will be the first time that I'm aware of in maybe my lifetime that just a standard length sub 12 hour event is on the calendar so interesting times for sure and then we've had some losses and we've had some adjustments and i know that we have a question or two about that on the imsa category so i'll save that for that but just mention here brother on the return to racing plan Mm -hmm. i i'm staring at three calendars on my wall for IndyCar right now. I printed out the original. I printed out the first adjusted schedule with the pandemic in mind. I've printed out a third schedule with the adjustment of the adjustment. I <laughs> I believe I, I've held off on printing a fourth and I'm in that same place with IMSA right now. Uh, we're now into, this is actually, I believe, just their second adjustment. I would be... 
really, really questioning whether I need to print it because I do believe there's going to be a third adjustment, maybe a fourth adjustment, and that's not specific to IMSA. I think many racing series are going to have their years constantly adjusted, and whether it is things that happen in the very near term, Graham, right, in the next week or two or three, more adjustments happen, or B, some of the return to racing things that happen, possibly find that outbreaks and otherwise uh, maybe cause a stoppage of racing. I don't think we're done with this roller coaster, my friend. Oh, no. No, no, no. I don't think we're nearly done with this roller coaster. I think, in fairness, in the conversations that I've had with some of those movers and shakers that you have too, Marshall, that is being recognised. What they're looking to do at the moment is to have a plan, to raise confidence in that plan, but to make sure that people... Uh, get the message that there should be some flexibility applied. And, you know, I'll, I'll give my, my final uh, word on this one is the appeal I've said over recent weeks, which is let's not get into a blame culture here. You know, this is really, really tough for absolutely everybody, drivers, teams, sponsors, everybody within those teams, you know, the likes of you and I, fans for that matter, uh, looking to get their enthusiasm back. But this is, I think, one of the toughest jobs that race organisers have had in living memory to just get something together that is flexible enough that we can get back and get back to some semblance of normality. The one thing to say uh, to remind people here is both the Daytona date and the Sebring date are envisaged at the moment as being behind closed doors. And I don't honestly see that changing is the straight answer has led mp to if you like the next most obvious chorus of dissent and that has been the inevitability that we're going to see some clashes here and there's a big one uh, in the uh, in north america with the the new we- weekend for watkins Glen uh, clashing with the uh, sro event igtc and the GT World Challenge America event at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which is, of course, also, I'm right, aren't I, a doubleheader with IndyCar. And even more fun, the new July 4 IMSA race at Daytona conflicts with IndyCar's new date at Indianapolis Motor Speedway on the road course. Now we've added the adjusted Watkins Glen race, which conflicts with IndyCar's second visit to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway road course. I think there's some form of IMSA scheduling process which says, look at IndyCar's website, find out when they're racing on the Indy road course, put a sports car race on that date. So uh, all I can tell you is if IndyCar by chance announces their 2021 schedule before IMSA, and you see where they might be on the IMS road course, just know there's going to be an IMSA race on that date. I believe that's the new standard. Well, I mean, with uh, thanks, by the way, to some of the later questions that didn't quite make the list, but recognising Ron Terpstra, Max Cowlin, who's asked about CTMP and why that's fallen off um, the, uh, the, the list, I'm sure that is going to be because of the uncertainty about border controls and uh, immigration controls and disease controls, et cetera, et cetera. It's extraordinary times. Like I say, right now, we're going to have to soak up a bit of that uncertainty, that decision-making process. And I think we're just going to... What do you think, MP? My view is we have to give them a buy. They've got to get a plan together. Where are you on this? You and I share an exact view, identical view on this. And I realize that we're... This isn't a rant. This is just a statement of someone who's been on the planet for almost 50 years. <laughs> 
one of the most amusing things to observe over the last couple of weeks, not the entire two-ish months of this shutdown, but over the last couple of weeks, there has been a collective, I can't stand this anymore, we need to get back to life, need to get back to racing, need to, everything needs to go back to normal. That I understand. Where the, the odd part, the humor, uh, the the mental sarcasm part is just sitting here going, where where and when do does man and woman come to recognize you don't control the world? You don't control nature. You don't control a virus. So you can decide that you are going to do this and do that. You're not going to change what is happening in nature in an instant. Obviously, folks are working on vaccines and working on all kinds of things, but in a very basic sense, the feeling of, well, we need to get back to racing in our little world. We need to get back. We need to go do this and that, and we're going to implement these measures and so on and so forth. And, okay, great, I understand it, but you are willingly deciding to go back to a form of entertainment that is non-essential. I know that it's essential for those working in it to earn a living, but we're going to go back while a pandemic is still, it might be on a mild decline in some places, not every place, but this is not a problem in the past. And so what I see of this, got to go, got to do this, got to put everything back in place the way it was before. I understand that sentiment. How do you do that when the problem still exists? The ship is taking on water. And while it is taking on water, we've decided, well, we just need to go back to normal sailing. Okay, got it. We still have a problem, though. So that's going to make normalcy a challenge. And so this is the thing, Graham, where oh, well, these people here screwed us. They have put this date on top of that date. And, well, why did, why did they cancel instead of postpone? And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is all coming from a place of tricking oneself and living in a world of fantasy where yeah. everything's normal, everything's good. Why didn't you make a decision that is just the way you would have two or three months ago? before everything popped off. We're not living in those times, friends. Nope. And again, I'm not speaking to you all, our listeners. I'm just saying in general, we're not living in those times. Why aren't people behaving the exact same way and making the same exact decisions I would have expected before the pandemic? Because this is changing us and has changed us. I don't think that's alarmist. I think that's just reality-ist. Uh, I'm looking at all the ways in which we have adjusted our lives, Graham, and expect some, possibly many of these things to carry over with some semblance of permanence. Uh, this isn't <laughs> this isn't a bruise that will be painful for a little bit and then heal up and go away as if it never existed. Uh, granted, 50 years from now, 10 years from now, I don't know what the timeline is. Maybe. But it's just a bit strange 
to see some folks not making that mental adjustment of, oh, yeah, I can't have everything that I want. Every decision being made doesn't fit into a box of perfection. Uh, I guess just further reminder that we do not all share the same reality. Fair enough. Um, we've got two questions which are sort of aligned to that. One comes from Vincent seventeen oh one. Have we officially all... kicked off a category? By the way, I think we're remiss uh, well, in that I department. If, I think, in which case, what we're going to have to say is we better kick off with a bit of respect to what's gone on for the last ten minutes with IMSA. There we go. I think it's official now. I'm not even going to play. I'm not going to play the jingle because this is not yep. playing week for me. And it might extend into many weeks. <laughs> right. Vincent1701, actually expanding on that point you've just made. Uh, and it's a business-related point. Uh, deserves respect for that. Do you think IMSA has missed a chance to get more eyes on it by not going back to racing first? And that is going to be, is it this weekend that NASCAR is racing behind closed doors? Sunday. Am I right? Sunday. Yep. Yes. Tomorrow. Uh, Vincent, great question. The answer is... 14,927% no. So IMSA has a very specific problem that no other racing series in North America faces to even this vague proximity. And that is almost half of its paddock is air quote international. Gets on a plane from outside United States borders or drives across border control into the country from Canada or Mexico. And with that border closing in mind, it's not even an option right now. And this is the big thing on the topic of I haven't printed off the new, new, new IMSA schedule because I'm not convinced the current one is going to stand. <laughs> IMSA's ability to go motor racing has nothing to do with sanction agreements and scheduling with tracks and none of that. There is nothing IMSA can do at this moment to control its fate to return to motor racing. And that is because the number is 40% that I'm told. 40% of IMSA's paddock drivers, crew members, technical support, manufacturer representatives, up and down, every role, race engineers, every single role has some form of European involvement or Asian or name the country that is not the United States. And there are people who come from those countries to participate and facilitate IMSA races until our country opens its borders until some of the countries that we're speaking of outside of the U.S. open their borders and allow their people to travel. We are not going to hold IMSA races because such a large percentage, Graham, of those folks cannot get in to play race car. This gets a bit complicated in another way, which is separate. I'll use IndyCar as an example. IndyCar has two, possibly three drivers who will not be able to go racing when their season commences on June 6th in Texas. They have not held a single race when that race gets going, provided those drivers cannot find some magical workaround 
they're going to start the season in a <clears throat> excuse me in a deficit points wise championship wise imsa has already held one race it already has a championship in motion uh that complicates things even more where you actually have some folks in fine championship positions who would suffer if the series were to try and go racing without almost half of its paddock there. There's no way those manufacturers, those teams, those anyone, that anyone involved would allow that to happen. IMSA as well would not go racing with half of its, almost half of its paddock missing. That's the issue it faces. And so again, we can announce schedules that we're racing on the moon tomorrow. Fantastic. Uh, how, where, we can't leave. I don't know if other folks can get there. This is the thing that is going to hold IMSA's season firmly. And so truly among all the series in the U.S., Graham, IMSA is the one more than any other relying relying on border control, Department of Homeland Security, to say when we can. And it's just simply a matter of travel. Yeah, I think that's a perfectly sensible way to uh, look around it. The uh, conversation with John Doonan announcing back to racing uh, made it clear that there were close uh, conversations underway with a variety of U.S. state and federal uh, organizations to try to expedite that. But here's the thing. It's not going to be their call, is it? Uh, The other thing that comes up from this general area is from Matt Anderson says, with almost half the year gone now, uncertainty about how many races we'll get in before the uh, before next season, has there been any discussion about how IMSA is going to handle driver ratings for next year? From what I understand, drivers are out of the sport for at least a year, get, get downgraded, such as Madison Snow did for this year. We've got upgraded to gold, then took last year off, it's now back at silver. What? How do we think that's going to pan out? I think there's another one of the unknowns that probably filed at the bottom of someone's in-tray somewhere uh, as a thing to worry about later. But it's a good question, isn't it? Is this one of the things that uh, there'll have to be a decision made now? Is it going to be something uh, that is going to be filed away in? Let's worry about that when we get through to November. Matt, that's a great question. I'll go out on a limb here and say IMSA has not even considered this, hasn't even thought of it. Just knowing where they are at with needing to put together a championship that is highly, highly suboptimal moving a lot of parts here. They've also had more layoffs of late Greg Elkin, their amazing director of communications. Laid That's off, truly sad. Among That's others, truly sad. Someone you will know from your annual visits on the Daytona International Speedway side, Andrew Booth, who runs, oh, wow. right? He's been let go. Uh, yeah, Herb Branham, um, who was former IMSA comms director and was at, DIS, he's no longer there. Ed is, this, is this furloughed or is no, this permanent? No. Oh, dear no, me. No, no. Ed Hall uh, on the IMSA side, uh, important person there within the uh, kind of infrastructure of running the series on the ground. Uh, one or two other folks as well, Ser- the WeatherTech series manager, um, yada, yada, yada. So just say, Matt, that yeah. It's a question that will, I'm sure, be addressed once the flow of the season gets going and someone remembers, oh, yeah, we should do that. We're so far away. 
this this is trying to determine who the caterer is going to be for the wedding before you've even proposed kind of deal. Uh, it's going to happen, but boy, there's so many things that have to happen first before we get to that stage. I don't know the answer. I'm going to fall in line with Graham yet again. Whatever does happen is probably going to be compromised and done a little bit on the fly just because this this year and the procedures and so many things that would have been on a calendar to happen normally, yeah, uh, none of those things are going to be normal. Yeah, I think the other thing to say on this one really briefly is even when we get back to racing, because everything is so compressed, people are going to have to be working at a pace here. And my view, when people are working at a pace, things get missed and things, mistakes do happen. It's a game. File that in the back of your minds here, boys and girls. Give these guys a bit of a break this year, uh, because when things happen, they're going to start to happen very, very quickly. And who knows what else we might have to be dealing with, including whether or not we do get second wave local outbreaks of COVID-19. Remember, there is still not yet a vaccine or a cure. Uh, So those are things that we're going to have to take into account in this new reality that we've now got. Moving on. Um, Daniel Summersgill. Hi, Daniel. Do you think the Corvette racing withdrawal from Le Mans is a one-off or something more sinister? Le Mans will not be the same without them. Absolutely agree on Le Mans. (laughs) Boy, Le Mans without Corvette. Crazy (sighs) to think, Graham, that there are... Young sports car fans who have never known a Le Mans without Corvette. Uh, Yeah, so this is going to be odd. Not the first oddity in terms of those expected to be there who have announced their withdrawal. We also expect that there could be more. I do not think, Daniel, that this is an indicator of anything bigger or more sinister from what I have been told. And this is by conversation not uh, with folks directly involved. Uh, This is truly a singular decision. One event, we're not going. I know that in the official statement that was provided to me by General Motors, there was a note of logistical challenge, obviously with coming back and going straight into an IMSA race the following weekend. I would not say that that is disingenuous. I'm sure that it is part of things, but like the question about driver ratings, I'd probably put that at the bottom of the list. This is the main thing I would gather from it. Racing at home in front of domestic fans with the most domestic supercar, well... That's fitting. That doesn't stand out as strange or odd. Keep in mind that if we're talking Corvette racing stablemates this weekend, Sunday, at Darlington, we're going to have the Team Chevy NASCAR program in place going and doing their thing. And there's no backlash that I've seen so far about that from a job, employment, uh, auto manufacturing. I haven't seen any backlash to that so far Graham 
the thought of Corvette Racing spending more than a million dollars to go over to France for this one-off race, albeit very important to you and I, and I would assume all of our listeners, that would be incredibly tone-deaf and would not fit the current economic climate, but also compassion climate, if that's a thing, knowing that the uh, United Auto Workers uh, folks here not been in a good place. Uh, Auto manufacturing is getting back right now, but a lot of folks have either been furloughed, laid off, you name it. Uh, Auto sales, dealership-wise, are... You know, have plummeted. We know this. It's a global phenomenon, not just American. We also know that General Motors and every major auto corporation has been struggling. That makes, <clears throat> as my voice cracks, I'm trying not to cry is what's going on here, Daniel. Um, we just know that the thought of, hey, we're going to go to France and play race car, that would be, I think, a bit too much. And so I think the messaging that is involved here that maybe goes a bit unspoken in that uh, official response, Graham. I think that's the thing to hold on to here. A lot of pain and suffering going on at home in the automotive world. Many of the folks who manufacture Chevrolets and other products by General Motors, along with every other brand. Uh, But this is something that I was not surprised to learn of. And when I did learn of it, I thought it was perfect. Now, unfortunate for sports car fans, unfortunate for the organizers, for the ACO. Corvette's obviously a big part, celebrated member of that race every year for 20 years now. But this is something where just recognizing the climate at home, this was a really smart event to pull off the calendar for them in just focus on IMSA, and that's exactly what they're doing, uh, based um, on the conversations th- I've had with them. Let's expand this to one from Dan Rice that says, with the IMSA-based Corvette Porsche teams pulling out of Le Mans for logistical reasons, he says, do you think it will affect other teams' decisions to run that race? Now, I'm going to expand this into two questions, other teams in general and other IMSA teams. Don't believe so on other IMSA teams, We're talking more on the performance tech motorsports level, doing something in LMP2, although I haven't spoken with Brent O'Neill, so who knows? I could be wrong. Uh, This is something where a well-funded client of theirs, having earned an invitation, wants to go achieve a dream and compete. Uh, If we're talking factory I'm struggling to think of any other, quote, factory efforts that would have been heading over um, that would still continue. But on the – go ahead. Well, in terms of the, 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 the other IMSA teams that we know are supposed to be heading over, there's a mixed bag on that. So we've got Rizzi Competizioni, but that is a collaboration with Ferrari France, as I re- yep. recall, from last year and again this year. We've got the gear racing effort, but that's not with their IMSA car, remember. So the so the defining factor there could be about immigration control, for instance, and about their ability to turn people around. And then there's WeatherTech Racing, which again, remember, 
that is not the car that they would be racing in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. It's a GTD Ferrari, GT3 Ferrari there. It's a GTE Ferrari in Europe. So for me, the key here, it, the key determinant is going to be just exactly what message are they getting about their people? Uh, because the reality is if you've got quarantine coming in and you've got quarantine going out, then that is a number of weeks that people could be actually stuck. Not hearing that that's uh, yet, you know, certainly isn't going to be yet confirmed one way or the other, but that might well be a key determinant on who decides ultimately to do what. But I tend to agree with you. I, I don't think we've seen the last of pullouts, but I don't think it's simply going to be defined by those logistics because reality is those logistics do not apply to the remaining uh, outfits from the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. Just throw in quickly as well, Graham, that recording this mid-May, it is hard to predict oh, yeah. what kind of quarantine, etc. border allowances close. I mean, it's really hard to say today what things will be like in that regard come September. I would assume yeah. better, easier, and reduced an assumption, but I would, again, I think if we're talking the folks more we're really we're just more or less left with pro-am entrance gte am type or lmp2 at le mans i think those folks are, are going to be less con they will have fewer considerations uh mm -hmm. one that a major auto manufacturer would have they would not so agree that i think we're not done with the change of plans with some who are going to withdraw but i don't think we're going to see it be a uniform thing as we've had so far with IMSA's GT Lamar efforts. Right, I'm going to close out the IMSA questions with two very, very different questions. This is what we love uh, for the questions we get from you guys week in, week out, is the variety is spectacular, and there can be two, um, like it'd be difficult to imagine two that are more different. Let's start with Beercat, who says, Beercat. Beer cat. It's got both things we like, beer and cats. Um Mazda recently patented a rotary hybrid system. Uh, Beercat's understanding is that rotary engines are outlawed, but could a modern rotary-powered Mazda find a home in Garage 56? Hybrid systems could make up for lack of low-end torque and be totally freaking cool, he said. I think that's an Americanism there. Um, I'm not aware in the current regulations that rotary engines are outlawed. Nor am I. And I've had the same question as well. I've yet to catch up with Nelson Cosgrove, who is the head of Mazda Motorsports here in the U.S., on mm -hmm. this topic. But it is one where I do want to get some insight from him because that, if there is any chance of a rotary returning, be it three rotors or four rotors, if there's any chance of that happening, that instantly becomes one of the big attractions for IMSA in the LMDH era and Mazda as well. Just mm -hmm. gets back to a place where folks <laughs> walk away from an event remembering that vehicle more than any other because of the maybe, sounds. Maybe because, the, maybe because they're going to need surgery for their ears, isn't it? Right? Well, but <laughs> the thing is, 20 plus years after the last proper uh, Mazda rotary prototypes. And I realized that there was 
you know, uh, the one in LMP2 and IMSA that ran through 2005-ish, I believe. But it's been a while. But I can tell you that whether it is the YouTubes or an audio podcast or whatever, you go back to four-rotor Mazdas in particular and those prototypes and GTO cars just win at all times. There are many folks who've never seen them race in modern competition and yet love them like a family member. So we have had, and we're more on the the Rolex GT uh, in Grand Am era with the RX-8s Mm -hmm. that were amazing, just amazing. Again, their sounds... (laughs) They they so helped make the show. But in terms of a prototype, anything IMSA can do to help Mazda go towards that direction with LMDH, just saying, Graham, I think it would be such a game changer for them because there's nothing else like it. If you just want to catch people's attention, folks who might not be fans of racing, driving by a motor racing circuit and hearing one go by, might well, I'm fairly convinced they would be compelled to pull over and stop just to listen to try and figure out what this crazy alien sound uh, happens to be. So I, this could be big. Yeah, I could pass on a couple of things. Number one, the most recent uh, time we've seen those engines racing was actually the Bathurst 12-hour because the ex-Grandam cars were passed yeah. on to an Australian buyer and raced relatively recently. The other thing, and it's actually news today, and it's incredibly sad news, which is... The Mazda that most people will remember is, of course, the 1991 Le Mans winning uh, uh, Group C car, sponsored by Renown um, and those fantastic uh, orange and green colours. Uh, it's, it is uh, a livery still owned. The rights to that livery are owned by Renown. Renown went bust yesterday after a century. Really? Um, after the impact of COVID-19. So Renown, who, by the way, are a clothing maker, um, Japanese company uh, with a century of history, they have, I'm afraid, fallen victim to this awful crisis. Won't be the last, uh, but that's really terrible news coming out of uh, Japan. Um, what do you say? That's that, that is just a tiny bit of motorsport history gone. Whether or not Mazda decide to do something uh, that uh, they've not done thus far and to buy the rights to that livery for something in the future would be an interesting one because they don't have the rights to do that without paying Renown something. Uh, But I'm afraid, yes, the news confirmed by Japanese media overnight is that Renown Incorporated uh, are, I'm afraid, uh, now out of business. That's really sad news. Indeed. Where do we go next, my friend? Uh, last one for the moment for IMSA comes from our good friend Megan's Motorsport. G'day, g'day. Uh, and he wants to know, not about the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, but the Prototype Challenge. Is the future of Prototype Challenge in IMSA racing healthy? Hashtag me personally. Don't believe it's given quite the respected amount of promotion the series deserves. Supposed to be, if I'm right, the final year of the current LMP3 cars, correct? Before we move to the new cars, which, let's face it, haven't debuted yet anywhere. Um, and we're now three, four months after that should have happened. But uh, whether or not that has an impact on the rollout schedule for IMSA, I'm guessing again, MP, is something that's going to have to be filed under we don't know yet. Well, going to pick a bone with you here. We don't use we don't know yet. 
we use an official hashtag on this podcast created by you. Uh, well, hashtag wait to see. Hashtag let's wait and see. Oh, boy. See, even we're even out of practice here. The, I, says, I blame the Corolla virus. I, I, I blame Stephen Kilby. Good. It's, it's, it's a disruptor. That's what it is. As you should. I have a positive opinion here, dearest Megans, on LMP2 Prototype Challenge, LMP2, LMP3 and Prototype Challenge. It appears to be healthy based on what we saw at uh, to start the year, and I don't believe this is going to be a significant hindrance to the class's ability to fire back up and go again. Could be wrong. But I think the buy-in price is something that is favorable. It's not crazily expensive to participate in. And I think for that and that alone, that should be something where its ability to continue going from strength to strength should be, by and large, unchanged once we do get back to racing. So I think think we're going to be fine there. As for future timing, new cars, etc., my expectation is we will have a delay in that regard, uh, even with a new uh, formula on the way. I know that one of the things that we do in America, maybe better than most, Graham, is not change formulas with everyone else and hold no. on to things. And that's not exclusive to sports cars. Uh, we, yeah, we tend to hold on to our stuff and race it longer sometimes than we actually should but yeah i would say that a major consideration here is knowing that smaller teams the kinds that run lmp3 cars would not be the ones flush with outrageous amounts of cash that would be even more of a reason to push back any introduction of the latest and greatest and did you mention as well there was some sort of question about pole speeds at daytona uh, i did i completely forgot about that what that was uh who was that from that Adrian, was to I ask you, you yeah, it was it was yeah it was asking you to uh explain how the difference the, the pole time the, the kind of the ultimate records ronnie jarvis and from the eagle toyota how the difference in those pole times was delivered in period well as i grasp what I have been told and try and process that the biggest differentiator that's tires. a great word yes I just bought it uh, off of the internet tires is the main thing that I understand separating how the laps were produced so while I do not have onboard data to review from the Toyota Eagle or the All-American Racers Eagle Mark III powered by Toyota that they built versus Ollie Jarvis's Mazda RT24P. I do know that when we met up last year at AAR and Mazda, I happened to be there on the same day that Ollie and John Doonan and some others from Mazda had come by to present them with a painting uh, and just to honor them uh, after claiming the pole that AAR had held for 25 years, a pole record. That was the main thing that stood out. The Michelin tires used by Ollie uh, allowed the Mazda to do some things on the infield and through the 
uh, the bus stop as well that just really and truly made massive ground on the Eagle. The Eagle's horsepower number would have been a bit higher. Uh, its straight line speed would have been a bit higher. Uh, there's you know a little bit more of a missile than the Mazda. Granted, and we also have pretty serious BOP in place today. Not as if it wasn't in 1993, though. That's another big thing. Uh, the uh, the late Dan Gurney, the great quote that he gave me a couple years ago, talking about by 93, the Eagle Mark III had been detuned so heavily by IMSA, its single turbo uh, was breathing through a restrictor. I think he described it as small as a mosquito's arse. Something along those lines. Uh, it just <laughs> choked down a lot. So very different vehicles, obviously. But, yeah, tires actually was the big thing. Another, just to complement that, the refrains while at All-American Racers with Mazda last year was, boy, we sure would love to wheel the old girl out and bolt on some modern tires because I think think you guys might be surprised at the number we put up even with a car that uh, i think was older than at least one of the drivers in that rt24p lineup so uh yeah that often is the answer to you know if we look back at other racing series that has amazing speeds cars that were capable of amazing speeds thousand horsepower this that or the other and why are cars today going quicker or faster and otherwise? Well, lots of reasons. One of them tends to be tires at the top of that list. You throw in some other efficiencies as well. If you think of the manual shifting required compared to everything happening in a millisecond today throughout a lap, that adds up to a lot of time not lost during shifting. That back. 15, 20, 30, however many years ago. That's time just simply given up. Quality of brakes, carbon brakes in many cases here. And just, again, on and on and on and on. Uh, lots of reasons why. But yeah, it just simply bolting on a modern set of Michelins and tuning that chassis to make the best use of those, I think the old Eagle Mark III would not only take that lap record back, but put it to a number that is not going to be uh, claimed for maybe another 25 years. I've just, uh, listening to that, and that was brilliant stuff, MP. What a brilliant marketing opportunity that would be for a tire company or a brake company or both uh, to go hunting for records with an, uh, 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 you know, one of those legendary race cars just using those modern components. What an amazing thing that would be, wouldn't it? I would, I would sign up. To cover that I'll be, I'll be there i'll be there i'll be there um i think that's us with imsa and again thanks very much for your questions come on guys we're going to get back to racing at some point get your thinking caps on ask away because as always there's a lot more that sits within the roundish object that sits on top of my shoulders and the same with marshall than we necessarily will actually give up um in our weekly daily jottings for racer and for daily sports car, amongst others, uh, ask a question. You never know what little um, 
nugget you might actually find back here in the week in sports cars. Uh, that was me asking you for him, sir. What's next, MP? Oh, no, no. Oh, sorry. You're the it's official me, selector. It? I'm going to be going for Weck Aslam's Elmson Aco. We are going to launch off here with Miggins Motorsport. Why? Yes, we love ourselves some Miggins. Is the Asian Le Mans series still on course and on schedule given the global pandemic, Graham? Uh, right. The answer is they have a calendar uh, ready to go. Uh, I know what that calendar is. I'm being given at the moment no reason to expect that they are going to be the uh, the ones to determine whether or not there's any changes to that, whether or not there are changes to other events might affect that. At the moment, they're ready. Uh, I actually think... Uh, in terms of the time scales here, we're talking kind of mid-late November for a start for uh, the Asia Le Mans series. That could be pretty handy, couldn't it? In terms of uh, the compactness of the of the of the schedule that would follow for races, for four-hour races with potential for a Le Mans um, uh, qualification to come from uh, from from those races from that championship, it could be. Really handy for the Asia Le Mans series if uh, we get any further delays for back to racing in Europe. Uh, we are going to have to be in a hashtag wait and see um, situation here. But at the moment, uh, I can tell you that the team behind the scenes is pushing hard and planning hard and contacting teams and building that level of confidence that is going to be required that says, if we're ready to go, we'd like you to be ready with us and we're here to help you. Um, so the moment begins motorsport. The answer is yes, they're ready to go as long as they're able. Going to move to Jacob Bame. Should ELMS season grand be delayed even further? How big of an impact of car counts should we expect? And are there any teams that might be in danger of going bust if they can't go racing in mid July as we open Weckasm Elms Aco? The acronym, the one-word acronym for all the series that you cover on the topic of schedule adjustments. I think the answer is we're going to find out um, in due course who is beginning to get rocky around the edges here. I've spoken to a lot of the teams. Of course, people are struggling here. Who isn't? Um, But they're all pushing hard to be back when they possibly can. I think there's two aspects here. One is, for the most part... This is a European series, and therefore you can do most of these things by car and by truck. However, there are actually a fair number of teams that do feature for 2020 North American drivers. Uh, I can think of at least four off the top of my head. And in the case of one or two of those, it's all North American drivers. That might be a defining factor as to whether or not that team or that car can show up at this stage. And the problem here is... Double for those teams. What do you do? Do you plan now for the fact that it won't be possible, in which case you have a shadow program, in which case what's that doing for your confidence levels with your current customers, or do you just plow ahead with plan A, at which point things could disintegrate very, very rapidly? Uh, I think the um, the plan to go back uh, late July in Paul Ricard is ambitious. As I said a little earlier in the show, there is a plan B for that, which I think looks to me at the moment to be potentially rather more deliverable. And I've discussed that uh, amongst others with three or four of the teams that are involved here, all of whom uh, would endorse 
frankly, either plan at this kind of stage. Um, do I think we're going to have casualties here? Yeah, I do. I do think we're going to find there are going to be some casualties. Do I expect more or less any major championships entry to be unscathed by this? No, I do expect we're going to see uh, drivers or teams falling by the wayside for a variety of reasons. The hope is that it's not too large a percentage. And the hope is that whatever the reasons behind that, that that's recoverable quickly for the, uh, the good people involved there. Um, this has been tough for everybody. And it's particularly tough if you've got a small business with tight margins. And that is almost the ditchery definition of a professional motorsports outfit. We are going to David Piles. Hey, David. This is with the financial belt being tightened on all fronts, Graham. Could any of Aston Martin's sport car, sports car racing programs be in danger? Mentions that with a company officially entering Formula One next year, could the F1 team get the priority at the expense of sports cars? It could. Um, do I expect it's going to happen? Probably not. Uh, but then again, we've not got access to Aston Martin's books. I do expect a difference in the the depth and quality of information we're going to get in the short to medium term future from Aston Martin as it adjusts to its new reality. What I would say is that the core people involved in decision making to this point have been very clear that actually having relevant vehicles uh, out there and competing both in factory and customer based programs has been a very um, serious part of the way in which they have marketed that brand directly to customers. That's going to be important for them because for any company, it's all very well having you know a Formula One team, and I hope uh, that uh, that association uh, will help them to rebuild from some of the damage that's been done in, in recent months and years. But the reality here is they need relevance as well. I don't see the GT programs going away. Does, do I think GT is at threat? I think it's under threat from LMDH. And, you know, if Aston Martin what, need a plan B, then that, that's uh, going to need to be something that comes forward pretty quickly now. Um, but I don't see, for instance, the customer racing side of things being under threat. Why? Because it makes money. It's as simple as that. If it makes money, uh, it will continue. This is what we're going to see increasingly coming forward. We actually had this question in your absence last week, uh, MP about customer LMDH programs. What we're going through right now only makes the availability of customer programs more likely. Does it mean that necessarily the customer base is going to be more likely? No, it doesn't. But it does mean that there's going to be more pressure for motorsports not to be a cost center, but a profit center. And you get that with customer racing programs. Quick addition here. We have a case, Graham, where <clears throat> outside of the full factory GTE Pro Aston effort, uh, we've had a pretty consistent business model for Aston Martin Racing being a fine and consistent supplier of customer programs. So I can't say how much that has contributed to the bottom line and or offset costs for the pro side but we do know that despite whatever belt tightening that is taking place there has been a fairly successful and consistent effort 
by the Aston Martin factory team to indeed run cars and have those cars run and funded by wealthy business folk. And that's, that can only be received as a positive, especially in times like these, where unlike some other factory programs that do nothing but take money out of the parent company, this is one that, Again, I can't say whether it actually gives back, meaning it adds money to the bottom line, or, but at minimum, we do know that it helps ease the financial strain, and that, again, can only be something that helps uh, its sports car endeavors going forward. I mean, I'll add, add this, MP. I mean, uh, with the bits and pieces I've been writing, in fact, today uh, for DSC and yesterday as well, Looking back at ProDrive, who obviously build and operate those GTE Pro and GTM machines for the factory and a number of GT3 programs as well for customers, with their uh, history in top-line GT racing with cars that are either owned by a factory, a wealthy investor, an individual car owner, goes back now two decades And they've done so with success. They've done so with flexibility throughout that period of time. Whatever's going on within Aston Martin, they will not right now be idle in checking where their potential for future business could be. So watch this space in terms of what comes out of Aston Martin and ProDrive. Lots of unknowns. Current situation will not have helped clarity in that matter. Uh, but we will hashtag wait and see what comes out of two organizations that directly affected here. One is Aston Martin Lagonda. The other one is Aston Martin Racing slash ProDrive. It's a bit of a statement with questiony close to it. This comes from Tom Elliott. It says, while it's fantastic to see the new regulations coming together and hopefully bringing more competition back to the top class, it's strange to think how far the technology will have regressed against current LMP1 hybrids. As many countries have optimistically proposed complete bans on new internal combustion engine vehicles by 2030, with the new regulations intended to run until approximately 2027, Graham, how will OEMs respond towards the end of this window? Are we likely to see the emergence of a separate class at Le Mans to allow a transition to zero emission vehicles? Or is this the beginning of Le Mans beginning to position itself mainly for entertainment value rather than technology really interested to hear your thoughts great great item here tom uh, i think again this is going to be under everything is going to be affected by this current crisis isn't it but this is going to be another one where at the moment with a target to um to uh, get to the centenary race in 2023 we've got these conversations about zero emission regulations will that have to be delayed the market's going to have to decide and they're going to have to decide remarkably quickly but I would be surprised if we weren't in a position where where they thought they would be ready in 2023 that we might be talking about potentially a demonstration project in 23 and regulations moving a little further back I think they are where they are for pragmatic business led reasons and you know, uh, the, the the kind of the the phrase that keeps coming back, I've just used it before, is they are, I think, are learning 
across the board, that means IMSA, it means WEC, it means the ACO, they're going to have to let the market decide this because trying to push business in a direction at the moment is going to be a fool's errand. It's not going to be successful. Um, They're going to have to let the market decide just exactly where their ability to deliver projects, their flexibility to do so, when they can do so. Um, All those things are going to have to come out in the mix. What do I expect will happen? I think there will be pressure from some to keep to the targets um, of launching LMDH as is planned at the moment for 2022. I think there will be uh, pressure from others to delay by a year. And the big call is going to be, do you go with um, potentially a smaller group early and take the uh, the plus that you're going to have uh, the, some new and shiny cars? Or do you wait for a further year uh, and allow that to mature and allow there to be a bigger group in your top class uh, in year two? It's going to be a numbers game, isn't it? Uh, in every possible way here, MP. It's going to be a numbers game in terms of the numbers of cars. It's going to be a numbers game in terms of the budgets that are going to be available, if any, from some of those makers. It's going to be a numbers game. And I think what we've got for the next couple of years, at the very least, is a bit of a reality check here about what the finances realistically are going to be for the immediate short to medium term future. Throw in a quick thing or two here, Graham, and this is just because I have not, you and I have not done this little dance over the last <laughs> two weeks. Have heard confirmation, private confirmation, that Peugeot has indeed opted for hypercar route, knowing that LMDH was being seriously considered uh, that they will formally go hypercar. And I think that stands as a canary in the coal mine type moment where this is led by Tom's intro a bit uh, of mentioning, you know, fantastic to see the new regulations coming together. The together part, I think, needs a bit of adjustment in our, our global mindset of convergence. When this looked like it was going to be true convergence. You play over here. We play over there. Okay, they're going to be different vehicles, but boy, this is just, this is going to be super united. That conjured thoughts of, hey, well, boy, since we have, we'll just call this open borders. We've got open borders going in both directions. Boy, maybe... Some European manufacturers that might concentrate most heavily on the WEC could choose to build an LMDH because financially it fits their needs more. But again, things are going to be balanced. They can use it in the WEC. Hey, you bet. And I'm not saying I was expecting any IMSA DPI manufacturers at the moment to build hypercars to then race full-time in America. But at least that was the concept that seemed possible. With where we've headed with the rules and things have been finalized, the item that I hear from a significant, overwhelming majority of team owners and constructors that I've spoken with uh, within the last two weeks or so, maybe three, has been, oh, 
well, okay, Convergence is turning out to be, you build your cars and play over there. We're going to build our cars and play over here, but we can take our cars and race at your big 24-hour one in France. We'll see what ends up happening in terms of practical or realistic efforts to take hypercars over here, Graham, for Daytona, for Sebring, maybe. Not saying that there isn't a pathway and there hasn't been a clearly defined path of you can if you do this and this and this, and we're still going to weigh it and judge it and we'll see if it fits. But this has turned out to be at least at this stage, unless there are some changes to the convergence rules and mindset, my friend, this has turned out to be exactly what we have right now with the addition of a open border for IMSA's formula to go and play in France. That's the sum total, the realistic shakeout of what we're going to see here. Of course, it's going to be LMP1 slash LMP1 hybrids replaced by hypercars. Of course, DPIs are going to be replaced with LMDHs and a new formula. I get that. But in those that I speak with, have I heard any say, oh, yeah, definitely going to bring our hypercar to mid-Ohio <laughs> for a one-off, you know, or, hey, we're going to, no, hey, we're going to take our LMDH and go to wherever we're going to spa again we'd love to hear that oh uh, truly that'd be amazing we'll have to hashtag wait and see let's wait and see if any of these current uh expectations change graham but uh, i will tell you and i'm not obviously going to name names but i've had a lot of these conversations with folks just getting their temperature what do you think now that we have LMDH rules out now that we have this this framework for balancing cars and et cetera, et cetera. What do you think? Is this true? Hands united across the Atlantic Ocean, Pacific Ocean, and just open borders and happiness? And the majority of the responses have been, no, we're just going to keep doing our thing the way we do it, except, again, those American guys can come over here with their IMSA cars and race at Le Mans. Other than that, meh, there might not be a whole lot of true on-track converging elsewhere. I, th- I think I'd, I'd take issue with one thing there, and that is it does offer one potential opportunity, which is WC LMDH teams might want to come and do those races, particularly the, the Blue Ribbon races in the US. Toys are, by the way, making it clear that they were... They are certainly open to looking at more than just uh, the Rolex 24. Uh, the interesting thing is going to be whether Peugeot, I think I'm correct, a manufacturer that doesn't currently market any cars in North America. Oh, sorry, certainly in, in the USA. Although I had heard all sorts of rumors that they might be looking to get back in there, whether or not they'd be. 2026 is what I've heard was Fine. the plan. But again, that was a pre pandemic plan. Okay. There you go. So I think, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things that are up in the air there. Um, so the one bit I'd say as a balance there is don't count out major, major manufacturer teams coming to WC with LMDH manufa- uh, uh, cars from 2023 onwards. 
wanting potentially to add some added value, some return on their investment by bringing their cars or even customer cars to uh, to some of the bigger IMSA races. What's next, MP? We are going to... Where are we going? Why don't we try our man James Bethay, who asks, when are we going to have a show dedicated to how many of the teams on the Le Mans reserve list will be added into the show and also the adjusted Le Mans entry list. James also adds thanks for always feeding us expert and timely sports car information. Okay, the, the, the interesting one here, and again, it's something we've covered um, over the announcements with Porsche, taking the IMSA cars out of the reckoning for Le Mans, also Corvette, and also called Fred Sosay's um, Garage 56 car going out. The interesting part of that, you're absolutely right, James, is that we've not so far had an adjusted entry list um, given to us by the ACO. So the supposition at the moment is which of the reserves are going to be elevated to the overall entry, but we've not had that officially confirmed. Neither um, have we had it officially confirmed as to the last teams that we'll be pulling out. I think I'm right, MP, if you can share with us, but uh, this was not a snap decision from Corvette. This was a decision made some little time ago. Yeah, uh, the information I was given, and this is, again, not secondhand, but firsthand, that the news of their intent to not make the trip to Le Mans was done in April. Yeah. So this is indeed not something that just happened. This is something, uh, the comment that I was, the phrase that was given to me was significantly surprised it took this long for this information to get out. Yeah. Okay. And of course, broken by French media. So that's a, yes. that's going to be a direct leak from the ACO. No, so that is do not dare. <laughs> just heresy. How could that be possible? Heresy. Now, yes. it's, it's, it's a complete coincidence that the journalist who broke it is also the co author of the Le Mans yearbook. Uh, <laughs> heresy, heresy, by the way. Bless him. And, and um, by the way, no criticism there. That's that's perfectly legit as far as I'm concerned. Of course. Um, so th- the reality here is at the moment we have a 10-car list of reserves. I think I'm right in my recollection. 74 cars were initially entered for the Le Mans 24 hours. 62 on the list. 10 on the reserve list. That means that two sit outside that reserve list. So there's potential for a bit of a kind of stretch uh, reserve list. I know of at least one of those two that would be ready to accept that invitation should it come their way. Um, but uh, do I think we're going to see more withdrawals? Yes, I do. Uh, can I tell you who they're going to be? No, I can't. Um, and uh, even if I could, I wouldn't. I'd be writing it first. Uh, but the reality here is these are extraordinary times. They're extraordinary pressures. And for a variety of reasons, some of those uh efforts that are currently on either of those lists, whether or not it be the actual entry list or the reserve list, will be under pressure right now. I just want to give these guys and girls an opportunity to breathe and to work through what are massive issues at the moment uh, and give themselves the best possible opportunity, not just to race at Le Mans, if that's what they wish to do, but to stay in business right now. That's the bigger bigger picture here for me it's not about whether or not they form part of that 62 in 2020 whenever that race happens whether or not we go in september or later 
It's whether or not we see those good people uh, gainfully employed and back in a paddock at some point soon. That, for me, is the much, much bigger story. Let's take one more from our friend Stathis Coco. says, Graham, this may be a stupid question, but how was it that 10 to 12 years ago, Lamar had almost 20 LMP1 entries when an Audi or Peugeot win was 100% guarantee, and now we can't get past 10 P1 cars? says, why? Was it just the cost went up? Is it more expensive now, pre-COVID-19? says, I know it's more complex, but dot, dot, dot. What do you think? Uh, there's only one place in the world you can race an LMP1 car, and that is the FI World Endurance Championship, uh, is what it comes down to. Remember, we did have the Le Mans series. That was principally, not exclusively, but principally a European-based championship for much of its history, uh, which meant that the actual costs of running those cars were considerably less. There was less factory opposition, which meant that uh, on a good day, Henri Pescarolo and his fine uh, band could actually snap away the heels and look to take a win. Same with the likes of Creation back in the day, etc., and others. But uh, you're absolutely right. Things have moved on. The ability for those professional race teams in a world that now rewards the Pro-Am uh, uh, opportunities in international sports car racing rather more with that 2017 um, classification for LMP2 that has changed things an awful lot has it taken some things away it 100% has taken some things away we've debated it left right and center here on the week in sports cars and elsewhere uh, what it has meant is a more sustainable business case for some of those teams so to my mind the proof of that particular pudding will be on the balance sheets. Current crisis will directly affect that, I'm afraid, for right now. But my guess would be, if you did an historic analysis looking back over the last 10, 12, 20 years, you're going to find more of those organisations that are staying around for longer simply because they're able to operate at a competitive level for longer with the same machinery. That, I think, is what they're aiming for with what they describe as this kind of cost capping sustainability. Does it take away some of the attraction? Yes. Does it take away some of the ultimate performance? Yes. Uh, does it take away uh, some of the return on investment for the teams? No. Uh, that, I think, is the key to why you're going to see, I hope, uh, a larger proportion of those teams uh, and organizations involved in racing around for longer in any particular era that closes out weck asm elms aco well there's only two places to go then aren't there well there are i Which... think it's time for the entirely teutonic germanic her general beautiful let me foist some more at you <laughs> mine well, air there uh, seems to be one major question here, isn't there? Yeah, so that's going to come from Daniel Summersgill again. Graham, with Sebastian Vettel departing Ferrari in Formula One and with few places for him to go in F1, could we see him turn up in sports cars for either Toyota or possibly the rumored Porsche LMDH program? Yeah, I got similar questions from Kevin Kemp and from our good mate Right Turn Lover as well. I think he's just, I think young Sebastian strikes me as the absolutely classic example 
of a man that needs to walk away from racing for a year and decide what he wants to do. Uh, I, I think it, it, I'm not a, a major follower of Formula One anymore, um, but I do take a passing interest in just some of these kind of dynamics. And he's not been a happy boy for quite some time uh, in in that environment. Pretty clearly, the arrival of Charles Leclerc has had a major impact, I think, on a number of things. One, your biggest competitor is your teammate. Charles Leclerc is a supremely talented young man. Two, very clear that once it became clear that he was able to produce performances that he was, that the emphasis within the, as always, highly political uh, Ferrari team shifted pretty comprehensively. Three, it has to be said, I think that got in his head more than you would hope that a multiple world championship, a championship winning driver would let that affect him, certainly in the short term, and mistakes were made. I think Sebastian Vettel needs to take a year out, is the straight answer. I think he needs to take a year out. I think he needs to gather himself. I think he needs to find them, find his happy place. And at the end of that, which, by the way, coincidentally, um, coincides with the suggested um, start of the LMDH formula. But at the end of that, I'd thoroughly welcome a man of his supreme talents in sports car racing. Um, and I hope he finds his happier place uh, than he's been for the last, evidently, the last couple of years, where his ultimate competitiveness has been rather tarnished by... I think a couple of incidents and a couple of bits of behaviour not really um, living up to the character that he'd built up for the previous, what is it, decade or so in Formula One. Um, I'd love to have him. I think he needs to take a year. Not only do I agree, would say that I am struggling to recall young Mr. Vettel really espousing any interest in sports cars. I'm not saying mm -hmm. he's never been asked the question, would you like to do Le Mans one day? And maybe he said yes, but that's a lot different than speaking with folks and sharing a passion for doing sports cars firsthand. Hey, boy, yeah, I know we got F1 this weekend, but boy, I can't wait for this sports car event. Or, I mean, again, it's one thing to be asked a question and to answer. It's another to openly share one's interest i struggle to recall anything coming from him of a boy yes sports cars do interest me so we know that he does not need the money we know that he has never been an open advocate of sports car racing is something i really want to go do i can't see how this would be something that holds his interest he's never said anything about indycar um again of, of real Oh, I can't wait to do this at some point in time in my career. He does seem like a very singular person. He's Formula mm -hmm. One guy. He's also a very moody guy. And I tell you, you want to be upset? You want to be really moody? Try lapping some guy whose name you've never heard of, nor could you pronounce in a GTEM, whatever, um, trying to get around that cat at the Porsche Curves at. 3 a.m. Uh, when you know your your their headlights are half functioning, yeah, that is that is hell. That sounds like pure hell to me <laughs> for Sebastian Vettel. So love I'm, the I'm idea, gonna, can't see it yeah, happening. I'm gonna I'm gonna correct you. 
just a tiny bit because he has made a statement once about uh, interest and enthusiasm. You might recall this, but it was the year after uh, Nico Hulkenberg obviously won the race. And I think, wasn't it an F1 press conference that happened uh, after the end of the race? And he asked, does anybody know who won Le Mans in the press conference? And that was the, the moment he was given the information about what happened on the final lap to Toyota and issued an expletive, if I remember rightly. So I think he has shown at least a spark of interest in it. Whether or not that's enough uh, for him to actually, you know, decide to take up a, a, a race offer is an entirely different question. But yeah, I'd, I'd like to see it at some point in the future. Um, he's got something to offer. Of course he has. Um, would it be with Ferrari? <laughs> Unlikely, I think, at the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, hashtag let's wait and see. Yeah, What's next, uh, well, I'll just also throw back as well, wanting to know if anybody knows about how a fellow German Formula One driver did on his Le Mans debut might be a bit specific compared to... No, 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 it was, it was the year after. It was the year after. Oh, it I was apologize. 16. Okay. No, no, it's, it's, so I, th- I think Hulkenberg at Le Mans raise the level of awareness in that paddock. I've, I've had the same conversation, by the way, with Jensen Button since. Absolutely, it did. But uh, I do wonder whether or not that... There was just that moment, wasn't it, where I think one or two of those guys were seeing the possibility for maybe for an opportunity. Remember where we were at the time. This was still at the time when we had um, three major factories involved at that level, um, you know, with multiple cars for each of those teams. So the reality, I think, at that stage was very different uh, to, to where we stand now. Throw another one at you. This comes from Tim Edwards. Hi, Tim. Says, great show, guys. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Could you explain the fundamental differences of GT cars from the aughts using the examples of <laughs> the Chevrolet Corvette C6R in GT1, GT2, and GTE guises. Well, GT2 and GTE effectively the same. There will be minor differences year on year, but effectively the same. What do you want to say about C6 uh, MP? The easiest examples I would give, Tim, would be the shift from GT1 to GT2. And again, as Graham mentioned, GTE is the modern variant of GT2, very close power and downforce and tire size i believe would be the primary areas of differences more power in gt1 more aero and bigger tires i wish there was there were vast complexities to throw in beyond that but that's mm. pretty much it considering that uh, corvette has been able to use one chassis to comply to a variety of regulations. It just does speak to the fact that the way the rules have changed been something where you can indeed make modifications to the same car over multiple years and continue to fall within uh, those regulations. There's some interesting stuff too that we've seen even in the gt2 slash gte uh guys we're talking the c6r where just looking at some photos that i shot at le mans from uh, 2014 2015 and i tell you i love the gt1 spec of the corvette uh c6r 
but yeah uh or, or i should say i think c5 i'm struggling i think c no n- d- never mind c6r the um the the just sheer good lord that thing is wide uh just the the overstated appearance of the cars that wasn't mm-hmm. lost and that's often the big differentiator that we do see if you go from you know in this case we're talking ones and twos and moving to letters with e's but as often happens if you go down to gt4 for example very production based compared to a gt1 level car and the bodywork as well tends to be very close or much closer, much more authentic to production, if not just outright production-based bodywork, as mm-hmm. you tend to move up the scale and closer to a GT1, uh, you tend to get things that are wider, more extruded, more cartoonish, and I think awesome. Cool to see, though, that that wasn't oh, yeah. really the case of that being dialed down as GT1 turned into GT2, and again today with modern gte so really though tim we're talking uh, as you drop down numbers and now get into letters you are losing some power you're losing some arrow i don't know if i'd just say downforce and drag but just bits the amount of arrow trickery and fun and and to play with those items get taken off the board and then again often rubber width there's a parallel here to a question we answered earlier in the show, MP, which was the one about the lap record setting cars at Le Mans. And, and my yardstick here comes from a conversation I had last week with Darren Turner. And I asked him, how does the DPR9, the GT1 car from the mid noughties compare with the GTE cars today? And that was a really interesting response from him. Less power. Absolutely right. Aero. They're clawing that back, aren't they, with more sure. and more understanding about what you can do. Tire technology most certainly has moved on dramatically. But there was another thing that came out of that, which I think warrants discussion in this uh, discussion, at least a, a point to be made here, which is the systems that support those drivers, things like traction control, have moved on so dramatically in a decade that you know it's a less raw package. Uh, which probably means it's you know it's it's like less dramatic to watch it and less dramatic to uh, to experience it from the driver's seat, but certainly delivers pace back uh, in all sorts of conditions to the GTE cars now because systems have moved on. They're more user friendly. They're more capable, and we see it as well. By the way, we've seen it as well through the LMP1 hybrid era, where the integration of all those massive amounts of systems into those cars has just made those cars perform better perform more fluidly um that they are more intuitive they're easier to actually tune into uh you know a driver's wants and needs to deliver consistency and pace so it it is that part of motorsport that perhaps sometimes gets forgotten development uh, which by the way does feed in directly to actually the cars that you and i drive on the road certainly hybrid systems absolutely that uh, those uh, those lessons have been fed in back through the r&d process into road cars let's not forget in this era of homologated vehicles that those developments can and do feedback into the road car product and that probably more than anything else systems um in those cars some of the invisible uh, aspects of those cars are the most relevant changes that have come in the last decade decade and a half 
Um, you're going to take the steering wheel here, my friend. I don't know if we're going to continue here or move on. I would, let's, we, ask, let's ask the, the final one here in uh, general, which comes from Enrique Brown, uh, who asks, is there a rule set that DTM um, could actually uh, use to save them at the moment uh, with the exits of Audi uh, from DTM? Uh, is there anything out there that might save them? Well, I'll give you my first 10 pedal. I think I said last week's show, They've had a sniff around GTE in the past. I think that opportunity has passed them by. GT3, it's too crowded a marketplace. Will Class 1 and the opportunity for teams, manufacturers to come from Japan help them? No, I don't think so. Certainly not going to replace the nine cars that Audi put on the uh, the, the, the grid, uh, well, should be on the grid for this year, had we started this year. I'll say this much. I think um, I think it's dead in the water. I cannot see any way uh, that uh, that ZTM is going to find a formula that will save itself other than effectively handing that title to something else. Uh, I don't know about UMP, but I think they've overstretched themselves. I think it's been uh, a... I think it's been a... They've been fighting a losing battle for at least two years to save that formula's relevance as a very heavily manufacturer-funded effectively national uh, touring car championship. Stood out to me in recent years, Graham is one that did not need the amount of speciality and expense, Mm. knowing that, granted, while the DTM has gained and held international interest to some degree... We all know about it. I'm not talking about us in the sport who love this sport, but those just international recognition, casual fandom, DTM is not a thing. If we look at the brands that have played in it, these are, by and large, well-known brands. I mean, Opal stands out as one where, great, Mm -hmm. if you can win and stand out, then that will certainly help you in the marketplace. I don't know if... BMW converts any sales by winning in the DTM in you know this past decade or Mercedes uh, so on and so forth I don't know if there's any real big movement of domestic sales as a result of playing in that series love the series it's amazing but as more scrutiny has been coming in on what are you doing in motor racing where are you spending it and why this is one that has jumped out as amazing, but less and less needed. And so this is something that we hear from brands uh, from time to time. We're leaving this racing series, whatever it might be, because we've gotten everything out of it that we needed. Loved it. Fun. But at this stage, Spending any more money on this racing program, we have reached a point of not just diminishing returns, but to us, we see it as zero returns. So at that point, the justifiability of it has been lost. It does feel like the DTM has been circling that area for a while with Audi, BMW, Mercedes, all in places of huh, don't know, love it, and it's ours, it's our domestic thing, but I don't know if it uh, 
is a need anymore. That is where this stood out as something that there's no immediate answer to it. Uh, along with, you know, that's the exact question here. What could be done? Well, anything would be a facsimile, Graham. Hey, we're going to shift to a GT3 formula. Okay. Um, boy, that sure isn't lacking in the marketplace. Uh, we're, there's almost nothing that comes to mind that could be done to replace DTM that would make it stand out in the way that the DTM has. So when you look at possibly losing a series that was so unique, ran to its own rules, and again, I know there are links, obviously, to Japan, but knowing that it's running within its own rules with cars that look like nothing else that are wholly specific to this category, what do you do to pick up and continue onwards? I don't know. You go to you try and borrow, go back to the super touring type formula uh, that was so popular back in the day, um, you know, which we have now in its modern version with the British Touring Car Championship, um, the World Touring Car Championship. I mean, those things were briefly popular, but that flamed out pretty quickly. Uh, I don't know where you go, uh, unless I, I, I just don't know I, where you go. So I I've fear got one that it's thing, lost. One th- one thing to offer, which is relevance, okay? And the relevance, I think, it could come to the DTM. Total reinvention. Learn from Formula E. The SUV challenge, I think. And I think you start with, you could do either multiple different events within the same race weekend or that you have specialist events at uh, various different places. You don't have, to, don't have to particularly go to the racetracks. The school run challenge, okay? The school run challenge. The only thing here, I think you could certainly have couples, families, you know, young drivers in the in the back of the car. Uh, the IKEA challenge, you know, which manufacturer can you fit the most uh, stuff you didn't go into the store initially to buy into the rear of their SUV? Um, the cleaning the husky sick out of the back of the uh, of the SUV. Um, I'm I'm sort of taking the Mickey here, but they really need to find something that is not as resource-hungry for limited return uh, as the DTM has been. And I I go back to a conversation at the point at which Audi were pulling out of uh, LMP1, the conversation with Dr. Volkan Ulrich, and he was cross, angry, that DTM had been preserved whilst LMP1, something with far more relevance to their global marketplace, uh, was sacrificed. But I think that was a point, frankly, where a lot of people within VAG were pretty angry about why programs that uh, were delivering that much return on investment um, were being axed and they were going to lose good people because of the poor uh, business decisions of a minority of senior executives. You know, throw in one quick parallel that comes to mind here and definitely different because of the costs, but what the DTM is experiencing right now is identical to what the American trans am series went through where it had big manufacturer participation for decades and as those manufacturers found fewer reasons to play there and found more relevance in siding with production-based racing something again using the same gt1 gt2 etc similar in those worlds trans am started to fall off just as simple as that and granted it's amazing 
those cars are truly amazing tube frame silhouette just insane wildly entertaining yet the decisions taken by manufacturer after manufacturer were were entertainment's fun but we have been here we have exhausted this and we actually are seeing more value in racing the cars that we manufacture so that's the direction we're going thankfully after some investment trans am is coming back by no means what it once was just as entertaining um for hashtag me personally but we have yet to see the vital vital change required to make it what it once was and that is a single manufacturer saying oh yes we're going to jump into trans am in 2020 or name the upcoming year and invest in making it a bigger thing than it is right now uh, it is one and only amateur based pro-am based model that is working that's all that they have right now so and that's at a cost level that is zillions less than a dtm budget and from a technology standpoint again dinosaurs compared to modern dtm machines so very similar things but we can look at trans am today and say "Ooh, well that's what the dtm would be like if it kept going but in private hands with no manufacturer participation sure there'd still be fans that love it be a much smaller fan base be a much smaller media presence wouldn't be the kind of tv package and so on so yeah i don't know what happens here uh, i would hate to you know have it confirmed that the dtm is no longer a thing all right graham we have not a lot of time left here we have one category to go it's You're, fun it is so <laughs> why don't you give my voice a bit of a break and read one or two to me and i'll try and find i'll one do for a couple you. of those Let's try with Doug Bonham. Surfing a popular auto blog recently said, posted video of the 1989 IMSA GTO DTU round at Del Mar, a 1.6-mile circuit built essentially in a parking lot. Question is simple. How hilariously bad or brilliant would it be to run that circuit with modern machines? It would be morbidly fun to see top-spec prototypes stuck in such a concrete bullring, says Doug. What say you? Well, Doug, as I hear... An echo of myself, self, on your end, end, and Graham, Graham, Graham. I was there for that event, so wow. it's awesome to hear that you watched it. It was amazing. IMSA GTP, GTO, GTU, I believe that was the season finale in 89. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing that I am reminded of on a very regular basis. The thought today of modern prototypes or modern anything racing at a small narrow track like del mar might jump out as funny only thing to keep in mind that in 1989 the most new and cutting edge prototypes and gt cars raced there so the other way to put it is LMP1 cars of their day raced 
<laughs> at Del Mar. So yeah. I would just say that I, for me personally, I don't know. I don't think of it as funny. I just think of it as, I just hope you realize that actually this, whatever we're doing today will be looked back at in 20 or 30 years and folks go, could you imagine? And you go, well, again, actually the peak technology in the world of sports prototypes was present at Del Mar that day and GTO and G, you know, and GT racing. So could I imagine what it was be, what it would be like? Absolutely. It'd be just like it was back then freaking awesome and seeing the latest and greatest and the most talented drivers and teams it'd be the same i wish we had that race back it was phenomenal uh ian keyworth says what happened to the le mans winning dower 962 lm cars team from 1994 were they ever raced again or did the team fold be great to see a return well the winning car became a museum piece of course um similar cars to that mp there was a car in in the japanese gt championship that year which was a 962 i'm not quite sure whether it was a dower i seem to recall some bonkers rule around that time where that car was not allowed to run a first gear which meant it was stupendously uh, slow off the line. There was a further 962, which may or may not have been dumbed down in that way, that ran in Belgian racing, Belcar, until I think not far off the turn of the decade. Um, I'd be happy to be corrected uh, in that, but certainly into the late 90s. But no, I mean, having seen the way that Porsche, because let's face it, it was certainly Porsche that had the big brain behind the... Uh, 1994 Le Mans winning effort from Jochen Dauer and co. Uh, then the uh, gaping holes in the GT1 regulations were filled pretty darn quickly. And we then got into the the four eras of GT1 racing we've been outlining with Daily Sports Car over the last uh, week and having great fun doing it. Uh, as I speak, literally right now, we're just putting the, the final touches to the last few stories for that week. But no, they did not race competitively again in international racing after 1994. Um, what else have we got here? You know, we opened with Ricky Zagata. Uh, and I know that you received a number of comments on comments shared last mm-hmm. week about a uh, kumbaya, let's all hold hands. <laughs> Uh, thing I'm paraphrasing from the writing what I read about everyone let's get along and be friends so Ricky Zagata says well the call last week for everyone to work together says it had me wondering what is the camaraderie like between motorsports journalists we all hate each other I'm only doing this because Graham has some extremely compromising photos of yep. me and Sam Collins at Le Mans yep yeah, that's not that's not a pleasant thought, is it? What I told Sam was a baguette. <laughs> <laughs> I think the answer here is just like any other professional marketplace. We have those people we like, we have those people we don't, we have those people we tolerate, we have those people we don't, we have those people that we would choose to spend some free time with, some social time with. We have those people we don't, and we wouldn't. Um, I'll say this. Uh, I'm very comfortable with the orbit in which I operate. I try very hard indeed not to uh, put people down. I have had, I have to tell you, a couple of calls uh, from colleagues uh, after that uh, podcast to uh, reach out and say thank you for saying that. I've not had uh, any 
uh, approaches from people that say that's a great idea let's collaborate from this way moving forward but there is a lot of collaboration with um, friends and colleagues we do that amongst the uh, the happy band that is DSC and Racer quite often uh, and across uh, various different parts of the sport as well when there are uh, stories that cross over I have journalists in other um, areas that I speak to and uh, exchange information with often it has to be said in a open fashion uh, whenever I get a tip in an area of racing that is not an area in which I operate I know there are friends and colleagues that I will pick up the phone to and offer that information to because it will be useful to them I have no idea what um, you're talking about nor do I ever separate <laughs> Um, and that, by the way, goes for things in domestic racing here in the UK as well. There are a couple of people that I will pick up the phone to semi-regularly and say, I've heard this, this may be interest, it's not a story that's of use to me, do with that what you will. Um, so the answer is, yeah, people have got friendships, people have got rivalries, people have got history uh, in all sorts of ways, shapes and means. And, you know, there are, as with, frankly, it's a bit like, bit like families, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, there are those people you'll spend time with and those people you'll avoid like the plague. Um, I don't suppose you're any different to that, really, are you, MP? Or is it just that you hate everybody? Equally. <laughs> <laughs> really simple thing for me here, uh, Ricky, it's respect. And yeah, yeah. There are a significant number of journalists, more than would fall into a category of ones that I do not respect. Uh, there's many, many, many fine journos and sports car, open wheel, etc. And those are the folks who I do look forward to seeing uh, at every event. And that's because we are not a dying breed. But there aren't many of that we're there aren't many of us left in the herd, and so especially the veteran reporters whose work I might have grown up reading uh, or were leading in their respective area of coverage while I was working on the crew side. Those are the folks who, granted, some of them have turned out to be absolute you know jackwads that I've got no time for, but the majority. It's been a pleasure to get to know them and some that I do not get to see on a regular basis, maybe once a year, every two years. I make an absolute point to go pay respect when I see them. Uh, whenever I see Nigel Roebuck, uh, when he comes over for the Indy 500, I tell him the same thing every year. Uh, grew up reading you. You were just my absolute beacon of journalism. Uh, Formula One really loving learning to love it feeling like i was in the paddock sitting next to the drivers that he was interviewing it was all facilitated by one man and so just getting to see him my eye i mean again i'm not young anymore my mind doesn't know that but i i do grasp that i've been on the planet for a little while i still just feel like that 16 year old kid rushing to get the latest issue of Autosport to read whatever good old Nige had to say about whatever race. Um, and so that's often the case again. Uh, Jonathan Ingram, veteran reporter, 
uh, mm-hmm. David Phillips and many, Mike many. Cotton. Exactly. Do uh, you know what? I've, I've never read an interview by Mike Cotton that I kind of wished I hadn't started and delighted to say Mike is one of those that I have actually commissioned to do work and he's done some delightful stuff for us down through the years. So I'll just throw in one or two here and let's just close on this, Graham. The modern journos of those, there are many that I respect greatly. We mention on the show every once in a while, Marcus Schurig, right? Absolutely. Good Lord. I mean, that is just an upstanding human being, uh, someone who he and I have shared some very quadruple off the record stuff, knowing that he could yeah. betray that and post something that would screw me massively, <laughs> right? I mean, and I'm just talking like a normal routine story, but no, you know, no, no. conversations were, wow, this is actually the giant thing I've been sitting on for months, but I just, can we talk? man to man and keep it that way and good lord uh andrew cotton uh stephen cole smith i could run down the list there are a number of modern day journalists who i have all the time in the world for and it all comes back to respect on two fronts their work the quality of the work the work ethic behind that as well but also just their human beingness uh i i struggle to i struggle to have respect for those who might be excellent at their job but just function as dirt bags as human beings and since we are on the inside of this and do get to know some of these people i'm sure there are folks that look at me and say a he's not talented at his job and he's a dirt bag cool i shouldn't i shouldn't have said it and i'm very sorry i saw that email it was not appreciated <laughs> i just remember it's bcc not cc yeah. next time you send that yeah, good one uh but anyways uh there are some who i just detest and i know that i'm detested by some it'd be you know again these are the normal ways of the world oh, but yeah. this i think ricky is just again as graham opened with it's normal right there are people in your office on your team in your whatever where you go yep those folks are golden those people are toxic trash and that's that's kind of normal so maybe that betrays a little bit of the the graham goodwin let's all get married and live in a commune uh (laughs) note that i (laughs) i wasn't here for last week ricky but i don't want to you know we're going to be the truthiness we're going to be honest with you here and so again if this question were asked to others at other outlets and other individuals with their podcasts, again, I would think they would say the same thing. And where Graham and I would fall, who knows? But I would also be lying if I told you I really gave a crap. Yep, that's a fair point. I have to say, I think I've earned the right to give a crap or not give a crap, and I choose very often not to. Is the is the straight answer there? Um, what can I do? Take one, two more. Let's do one more. I've got about three minutes. So pick and choose. You take it. You, you take it. You take it and read it to yourself. I'm going to go with, let's take this one right turn, lover. I know he's, he's tried it a few times. We'll, do you know what the Eurovision Song Contest is, MP? Since we don't have Eurovision, that would be a no. 
right, okay, it's terrible, and it's basically every European nation puts together a terrible song, and we all judge it the least terrible. And because everybody in the in Europe hates the UK, we always come last. So, um, right, so another says. Uh, rule change only sports car drivers are allowed who participates from which country using which style of musical contribution and stage outfits and who wins there's only one answer there's only one winner and that is Lawrence Fantour okay uh, but he would do that switch in uh, in kind of sympathy with his employer and would do it in Lederhosen but it would be heavy metal okay he'd win no doubt about that I don't know if there's anybody you could kind of think of a kind of Euro mashup type level, but uh, I see Lawrence Fanter, Lederhosen, heavy metal. Doing the band accepts Balls to the Wall by Lawrence right. Vantour. I absolutely think that's perfect. <laughs> the only other thought, and we'll stick with Lawrence Vantour because he is the answer Why to not? everything at all times, Absolutely, would be Lawrence in Chaps in cowboy boots with spurs and a cowboy hat just chap so pantsless right so ass cheeks flapping in the breeze uh doing his rendition of um my tractor always look at the bright side of life no my my this is country and western uh she thinks my tractor is sexy okay yes of course it's another porsche crossover there he could do that whilst on board a vintage porsche tractor exactly and we should also ask ourselves how we end up with Lawrence Van Tour because we do have an official hashtag included on a t-shirt now the hashtag Lawrence Van Tour sex robot uh, yep. from a past episode so um, maybe hashtag Lawrence Van Tour assless chaps uh, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of a way in which Earl Bamba comes into this but he's not European we, I mean neither is he by the way Australian and by a bizarre chain of events Australia now takes part in Eurovision don't ask me why, but uh, Australia actually do. Uh, the only other one I'm going to offer up here as a closer is it's got to be something peculiarly French. So I think an accordion um, kind of song, accordion song, you know, kind of a little bit like a French corner cafe. Fred Makowicki for sure is involved with this. I think Fred Makowicki maybe, you know, with, with a kind of a Galois for the corner of his mouth, accompanying Christophe Bouchou on the spoons. But instead of the spoons, is using a completely different instrument. But the problem with that is, of course, the way you play the spoons, you should do it on your knee. So I'm afraid his racing career is over after just one um, hammer-induced to knee uh, number. And as you've, you suggested, as you've suggested in our nine minutes of nonsense Bushu Hammer Emporium explanation there's a mild concern real hammers might have been taken two knees so we're just going to leave that right there I am Marshall Pruitt that is Graham Goodwin this is the week in sports cars brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers TorontoMotorsports.com as well and finally Bell Racing Helmets USA we will speak to you next week